Hello and welcome everyone. This is Minhaj, CEO of Cydia, which is an AI-enabled academic and industrial research company. And tonight we have um, Data Professor with us. Uh, it's been a long-awaited uh, video um, that you have all been requesting. Um, before we go ahead and dive into uh, our fantastic um, question line, I would like to let you know that um, for further conversations around the uh, interview and topic and his work, you can join our Slack community. The podcast is also going to be available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome, Shanine. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me here. Very excited. Quite late at the night. Um, what, what time is it? It's about ten fifteen p.m. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much <laughs> for uh, getting the time out uh, to talk to us. Um, let me talk about um, how I actually um, got introduced to your channel about a year ago. Um, and it's kind of uh, funny uh, what I noticed about your videos. Um, and it wasn't about data science. Uh, uh, one of the things that I noticed about your video is that we both share the same mic. Um, I have a blue Yeti and uh, probably you oh, use the okay. same one also. And right. the thing that I noticed is that you have this <laughs> sound blocking, you know, um, kind of thing on yeah, top of thing, that. Right? Yeah. And that was the first thing I noticed in your videos and not your data science. And that's kind of okay. funny, you know, how I remember your channel um, and I was just wondering you have to tell me about where I get I can get that also because <laughs> I've been trying to find that out uh, for quite some time now right did you make it yourself uh this thing actually I bought it from a online shop in Thailand okay yeah so it's called Shopee I mean I could send over the link for you Sure, that'd be great. And I've been uh, looking for it. And it's kind of funny, you know, the only thing that I remember um, your channel from is this mental association <laughs> of oh, this sound okay. thing. <laughs> awesome. um, first of all, teach me how to pronounce your name, actually. Um, let me give it a shot. It's called Shanane Nantasenama. Is it good? Perfect. Yes, that's <laughs> okay. like 95, 99%. Okay, first shot. Yeah, you got it right the first time. That's very amazing. It is, um, I don't know if uh, it's the same language family, but um, Thai and um, Chinese are the same family or uh, what kind of language is that? Actually, Thai um, uh, is based on Sanskrit, Sanskrit language. Okay, okay but, but I, I think that's the language um, that precedes um, Hindi in India also. And I think I, so, not, yeah. But if that's true, I should have been able to understand some of that. But it's written in very different script. What, what script is that? Is that right. original Sanskrit script or? Yeah, so it's modified. Tell me about it. What do you mean modified? Yeah, so actually, I'm not really into the language uh, origins. So they, they share like common common origins. And I believe like actually some words or some names are quite um, similar. Yeah, like, like, I guess. Um, yeah, like I, I noticed like the, the last name, like sometimes there's like SRI. It's also common in Thai as well. Okay. Yeah, like like prefix or suffix of the name. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, 
You know, your first video um, you published about a year ago, um, which was how did a biologist become a data scientist? It's a very interesting one. Uh, we're talking right. about your journey um, into data science, uh, being a biologist. Um, right. And I train a lot of uh, medical doctors, um, psychology students uh, in my workshops um, with R and everything else. And I've noticed something that um, is, it's very odd that um, people who come from uh, medicine backgrounds and um, psychology and social sciences, um, there aren't many data scientists courses um, at the undergrad level or the graduate level. And that's very hard for them to actually switch to data science once they get into um, the field or they want to do some advanced research that involves mm -hmm. um, data. And it's almost a kind of impossible, not always, but it's very hard to spoon feed them and the whole concept uh, from statistics and the different tools and how to get to coding. Uh, what has your experience been as a professor, uh, both on YouTube and in real life? Yeah, so let's see. Um, perhaps like before beginning to answer the question, um, may maybe about like my journey into data science. So like coming from a biology background, breaking into data science kind of happened uh, by chance. Although they're they're quite related because in biology we would generate a lot of data, and when we have like explosive amounts of data, the question is how do we make sense of those data? And so based on that question, it kind of led me to become more curious into like how can I make the most efficient use of the data at hand? And so like by serendipity, I went into a conference. And then in that conference, I met a, a newly graduated uh, instructor who just graduated his PhD from the US. And at the time, it was back in 2004. Uh, actually, the term data science was not yet popular or coined. So at the time, it was called data mining. And so I was acquainted to the field and then after that, um, everything became history. And so I pretty much fell in love with data science, data mining, and so been doing it ever since. And as an instructor or professor in bioinformatic, as you mentioned, actually data science has not really been integrated into our curriculum. We had like one undergraduate course in, in our bachelor's degree in medical technology because I teach in the faculty of medical technology. And so we had like a course called data processing and we had that course for the past like 10 years. And then only until recently we're starting to have more courses into like biomedical informatics as well as more uh, programming courses, which we've just created. And so we're going to be launching that very soon. So undergraduate student in the medical technology program will be able to take programming courses. And so that will be a game changer for the, the new batch of students. Because nowadays, as you will all know, that biology is pretty much exploding because there's more automation, there's more data. And so in order to keep up with those big data or omics era, we have to 
figure out ways in order to efficiently handle and also make sense of the data. And so it's natural that we also need to learn coding and we need to learn data science. Very interesting. Uh, I was wondering, um, you have this natural inclinity um, towards um, learning data science and using computational power to um, explore what can be done uh, in terms of drug development and uh, the data identification. We had Joshua Sarmer earlier um, on the show, and uh, he also did a lot of uh, work uh, with uh, drug discovery um, in biotechnology. Um, and I was just wondering if it's easy for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy for everyone else also, especially with the language. So what were some of the personal challenges that you faced uh, coming from uh, a biology um, background in learning and programming? Uh, because as far as I remember, uh, when you choose um, in high school in, in Pakistan, India, or you know other colonial mm -hmm. um, countries, um, in high school, you have to choose. You have to either um, take biology or math. So it's kind of either or choice. So okay. once you have taken biology the rest of their life, you're going to be you know, working with um, that specific subject. And that kind of leaves out um, a lot of room Mm -hmm. um in in learning um the other subject for example if if you're a medical student you know mathematics is um is, is almost um out of your um expertise and you know at some point when you are into biotechnology or drug development then all of a sudden you realize that that's what you needed also is that same in thailand or what has you what have your personal experiences been um in learning a subject that um you almost had forgotten from high school. Right, okay. So uh, first of all, like actually most of my uh, childhood education was based in the US. So I grew up in the US and I pretty much studied ever since kindergarten, preschool, kindergarten, uh, middle school, and then high school in the US. And Actually, when I was in the 10th grade, I took the high school equivalency examination. And then, so I, I pretty much skipped 11th and 12th grade. And then I got the, uh, it's called the California High School Proficiency Examination. And so that's like the equivalence of a high school diploma. And so I came back to Thailand after completing 10th grade and having this high school uh, equivalent diploma. And so I, embarked on, onto my journey in to pursuing a biology uh, undergraduate degree. And, and so back then, I think it was in the fourth year, I wanted to switch major to computer science, but then I figured out like, it's already pretty too late. I mean, it's like fourth year. And if I wanna shift to computer science, I would have to start over again. And so I, figured that it, it would be wiser to just complete the bachelor's degree in biology. And, and then at the time there was an opportunity for a scholarship for pursuing medical technology, uh, PhD. And so, and so I, I thought it was a great idea and I was intrigued by this documentary I saw. Um, it was like engineering an ear onto the back of a mouse and so, I mean, that that's like tissue engineering, right? 
And so that pretty much drew me into PhD study. Although upon entering the PhD study, I wasn't involved in tissue engineering, but instead I was involved in protein engineering. And so protein engineering would, like the project that I was doing is, was to modify the structure of the green fluorescent protein in order to like modify the amino acid in order to allow it to have like the color change, um, as well as to engineer a metal binding peptide onto the GFP or the green fluorescent protein so that it will be a biosensor, meaning that it will be able to bind to metal ions and then upon binding, it will give off this signal so that we know that there's a metal contamination in the environment. And so based on that work, I presented my work at a conference. And so I met the, uh, the researcher that I've mentioned who just newly graduated from uh, his, his PhD degree in data mining. And so I was able to then apply data mining to predict the colors of the GFP protein. And then I also ventured into computational drug discovery, building models in order to predict the drug bioactivity and been doing that ever since. So it, it was almost maybe 19 years since that date until this very day. No, actually 2004, 2021. Yeah, so it's 17 years since that day. Yeah, so I've been doing data mining for I think maybe seventeen years now. Yeah, so time really flies, and yeah, it does. Um, I'm going to have to ask you about um, the biggest challenge in terms of um, learning um, and the tools. But I think your video is shaking when you're leaning on the table. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So. so uh, the question is, what do you find in your own in teaching um, is the biggest challenge? Is it the statistical concepts um, that are hard to teach um, to students um, and the mathematics behind that, um, like correlation, aggression, classification, uh, use cases for that, um, putting that into um, code lines, um, how to interpret that, um, coefficients, things like this? Or do you think that it's the technical side of um, things that are um, harder for students to grasp. For example, installing RStudio um, and Jupyter Notebooks. Um, for me personally, um, I don't know why is that so, but it, it was it was quite a challenge to install Anaconda the first time, getting it to work, you know, changing directories, um, and then installing different things into roots, and then um, Kite and other uh, uh, lint fillers and things like this. What do you think are is the basic challenge? Okay. Yeah. So like statistical concepts or high level overview of machine learning, I think that could be conveyed by lecture and also by demonstration. Um, one of the biggest challenges I think would be the coding, learning to code, learning to program. And so like for, for those coming from a non-technical degree, I mean, just to grasp what is, what is the concept of a variable or, or an array or data structure, data types. So, so that's a pretty much a, a difficult topic to, to teach to the non-technical students. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, um, developing and um, installing all of the programs and getting it to work um, or, or also like, you know, like installing libraries and it might work in one version like R. I mean, there, there was, two, there was an issue like if you 
it might work in one version, but then if you have another operating system, it might not work. Yeah, so so there's some, you know, like some unexpected issues. So sometimes what w worked on your own computer, but but then when you arrive to the computer at at the lecture room, it didn't work. And so it, it might require some, you know, tinkering until it worked. And so it, in order to overcome that, there was this website called rstudio.cloud. And so allowing the students to get access to that one pretty much saved a lot of time to um, getting it set up on various operating system. So uh, based on those difficulties, I would recommend to look into like cloud platforms or something that you you know will work if you, or, or make an image or, or a Docker container as such, yeah. I think many people's um, refuge um, from this chaos um, of tools uh, in data science is to find intermediary softwares that are not um, syntax syntactic and code-based um, and not graphic user interface um, on the other mm -hmm. side. Um, you have made quite a lot of videos about um, different tools that you can use um, like Vika and H2O um, and PyCarrot. Um, I actually had Vice President of uh, Gartner um, on my show earlier, Doug Laney, um, and it was Gartner actually who coined the term um, citizen data scientists um, are the ones mm -hmm. who, who are not very um, technically sound um, as engineers. Um, on the other hand, and they're not also pure social scientists or um, people who do not work with um, coding. And for, for them, these tools might be a good um, refuge um, or let's say a middle path uh, right. they could use um, to analyze their data. And I was just wondering um, which tool uh, do, you, do you think um, is the best um, or the learning curve would be the shortest among all of them? Right, that's a great question. So actually I started off as I mean, you could say I was starting out as a like a citizen data scientist. So as a biologist doing um, research. So my first exposure to data mining was using Weka. And so we, why Weka? Because Weka is very accessible. Um, back in the days, I tried to learn C programming. Uh, actually, I made a video about that. And I mean, that effort failed like horribly. I tried Java and that also failed horribly. And then I tried Python, it worked. Yeah, it kind of clicked. And then when, when Python worked, learning R was a lot easier. And so I, I believe that, you know, like getting the grasp of the, the concept, the technical concept, it's a big challenge. And, and actually it kind of, it kind of clicked over the course of maybe like five years or so, like, not consistently, um, yeah. So like, kind of like on and off, you know. Like, um, I tried to learn it and it didn't work, and then I like maybe four years later I try again. Yeah. So actually, I I learned Python programming after graduating PhD. Um, during PhD, I tried to learn Java. During my undergraduate, I tried to learn C, and actually, I learned and clicked on Python after I graduated PhD for about two years. So it's been 2009, I, I got my, like, 2006, I got my PhD, 2008, I, I learned Python. Yeah, so 
Um, what would be easy, I would recommend to like whatever you are able to understand, if you could break into data science, but just, you know, like using point and click software, GUI based, I think that that's more than enough. And there are there are plenty. There there's Wika, there's Orange, there's Nime. So so Nime is actually a good tool, and it's heavily used in uh, for computational drug discovery. There's a lot of module that will allow you to perform like molecular descriptor calculation, and then you could connect all of the various node into a workflow in order to perform various analysis. And so, yeah. So whatever you're able to use to analyze your data, um, I would recommend to, to get a head start as soon as possible. And over the course of several years, you will slowly want to improve and then you will grasp other related concepts as well. Yes. So actually, I, I think that it's, it doesn't matter how you start. And so like Ken G also has this awesome concept about like gradient descent, like I mean, you could start your journey of learning data science anywhere. And then over the course of several years, you're, you have a tendency to want to improve and learn. Yeah, so over the year, you will acquire more knowledge. You'll, you'll know more mathematics, statistics for machine learning, and you also acquire uh, coding. So I, I think it all starts with the curiosity to learn. And then once that happens, and then you do it consistently, um, yeah, awesome initiative also by Kenji, 66 days of data. And so, yeah, so there's not, nothing stopping you. You just need to, to start and then everything will be history. So it will be like a snowball effect. You will learn a little bit every day. Yeah. It's a coincidence that you uh, mentioned K9. I was talking to their um, director of education um, outreach uh, about the software. And one of the problems seems to be that um, it's not really cheap, at least for um, the starting students, and then if you want to deploy that um, on AWS or um, Azure, then you know it, it scales up. Um, but on on the other hand, um, one of the interesting things you said about that you learn Python first, and then you moved on to um, R. Um, and there's a, nice. I know you know I'm going to open up Pandora box out there. Is there's a battlefield uh, already yeah. between Python and R there? But yeah, yeah. Um, don't you don't you think that um, but Python is um, a structure that's kind of more understandable. So it's kind of hard to move over to R instead um, the other way around. For example, I learned R first and then move on to Python. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounded a lot easier uh, with Python structure. But on the other hand, Python indentation, it's, it's, it's very hard for a lot of people to grasp that why do we have to actually put parentheses in the right place? Um, mm -hmm. So what, what do you think is uh, is going to be the future, um, regardless of the fact that you know it's also domain specific. So if you want to have a general purpose language, um, Python probably is a little bit better, but academics is um, pretty much dominated by R. Right. Yeah, that's a great question, and I I, th I really think that it really depends on the field. And um, one of the most fundamental reasons for using R or Python, I, I would believe is the availability of packages that would help your day-to-day -day job or work. Let's say that there's a package that will allow you to do a lot of um, tasks in a very short amount of time, instead of having to develop it yourself. If, you're, if, if it's available in R, then I, I think you're more inclined to use R as well. Or if the library is available in Python, um, but then let's say that 
you want to use that library. Like, for example, I, I will use an example in uh, my area of research. Um, like for Python, there's this library called RDKit. And if you're working into like cheminformatic in order to describe like chemical structure, then you would like to use RDKit. And it's not available in R. So it's like one or the other. It's like, if you want to use that one, then you have to learn Python. Um, back in the days, um, like, as I mentioned, I started using Python, but then there was this thing called Shiny. Shiny was introduced in R. And so that led me to wanna learn and use R. And Shiny allowed me to create awesome web application. Um, it's, it's based on bootstrapping. And so it, it is mobile friendly and it looks pretty great. And then one of the subscriber recommended Streamlit. And then that kind of led me back to Python. And then I'm like, wow, okay, Streamlit is very easy to, to develop. I mean, in, in just a few lines of code, you are, you're able to generate this very, very powerful data application. And yeah, so I, I really think it really depends on the library. It's not like the language per se, not, not like learning for the sake of learning, but learning for the application of what the language will allow you to do. And so I, I think it's the features provided in Python or those provided in R, that would be the major driving force for myself in selecting a programming language. And so as you can see, I, I'm very indecisive of which language I like more. So I would say I like both of them. I like both Python and R. But there, there's a new recent development. Um, I guess both Python and R are now realizing the fact that how big both of them have become. And there are interfaces into other languages. For example, within R Studio, you can have the Python code um, imported right. and uh, vice versa. I was just wondering, how do you see this development? Yeah, I think that is very, that, that's a great feature to have and to allow those who prefer R or those who prefer Python to coexist together. And like Jupyter Notebook supports both Python and R, um, but then to a different degree, like, um, or maybe Google Colab predominantly supports Python natively, but then there are hacks that will allow you to use it in R. And actually I, I made some videos about that, like how you could use R on Google Colab and and aside from Python and R, I mean, there's an, an upcoming language, Julia. And like Richard, Richard from Richard on Data, he has some awesome videos about Julia for data science. And so there, there are pretty cool libraries as well. Like there is a machine learning library called Flux for Julia, F-L-U-X. And then there's a port of scikit-learn in Julia as well. So they kind of ported into the Julia Julia language. Well, it's yeah, been so maybe yeah. It's been predicted that Julia is probably going to be the future, and I'm just wondering: Have you had a chance to play with that, and um, do you see the potential there? Right, I've actually had some plans to start using Julia, so maybe I have to come back to you on on, on an answer for that. Yeah, I also uh, see some potential of it, and. Um, I'm also planning to maybe make some tutorial videos about that. Yeah, so uh, I'm planning to learn it as well, yeah. Let's take a detour and talk to you about um, your journey, not in terms of um, tools and um, the 
subject specific learning uh, but by your by your own um like personal um life have you always been curious as a child uh, about uh, things about data were you good at mathematics um or is that something that you developed um during your studies um and then stick to that yeah so i've always been fond of science so it, it was not really data but i think it's the curiosity to learn about the world around us and actually as a kid i i participated in this um science olympiad um in school i was part i took part in this um rocket building contest where you take like a rocket bottle um like a bottle you know like a a water bottle and then you would add high pressure water to it and then you have to design a parachute at the top of the bottle and so the the rocket bottle that is able to hang in the air for the most amount of time well the team will win and so uh we we took part in that and, and we got like sixth place in the competition and we we i also took part in this like tower building contest so it's like science olympiad and then we were able to take part in the uh in the space final so competing at the national level in the whole of california uh but then unfortunately we lost there so we didn't make it to the the nationals yeah so we were only at the state finals and so actually that gave me a, a good exposure to the um like the wonders of science and um the ambiance of uh participating in science competitions it kind of gives this adrenaline pumping um learning and also applying and you know competing and it's pretty fun as well um, and also aside from that I, I also like to play basketball so it, it kind of have a sim same you know like a similar sense of um like a competition like game you know like yeah so we have to prepare so that we can um like take on challenges and yeah so so that was pretty fun for me and aside from that i was pretty much um into bill nye the science guy i'm, I'm not sure if, if you're also watching that one as well so bill nye he has this awesome uh tv show where he would have like you know like he would cover various concepts in science in a fun way. And so after school every day, I would watch uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy. And actually, I created this channel, um, like my daughter um, suggested that I should create like a channel. Why don't I create a channel? And actually I was going to name the channel The Data Guy, but then I, I, at the time that name was already taken some, somewhere and so, because I'm in academia and I'm working as a professor. And so, and, and then the second choice was data professor uh, because my name is very long, like like who would be able to remember that long name, right? So data professor became an, uh, a, an easier to remember choice. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you talked about the machine learning algorithms that you mostly use in your work. And um, some of them happen to be um, linear regression and um, decision trees, uh, support vector machine and artificial neural networks. Um, and I was just wondering, um, do you say that these have 
these have been most helpful or do you think that they're in general they're they're the most um, efficient one regardless of the use case you, you mean like which algorithms are the most useful you think it's useful in your specific line of work or do you think these are generally uh, the best ones all right so yeah so generally um like like they're the like the traditional now right because of deep learning um so they're like the traditional uh machine learning algorithms i would say they are very they're very useful for uh biology and deep learning is becoming uh, a new player on the block and transformer as well uh, as you may know of the alpha fold 2 which mm -hmm. pretty much was able to predict the protein structure to a level of accuracy similar to the experimental assay. Um, and so, yeah, so support vector machine, random forest, um, extreme gradient boosting tree, they're all useful, but then to a biologist or chemist, they don't really, you know, they don't really care about the technology. Um, they don't really care about that. Like what do they care is how are they able to use that to drive insights into the understanding which feature are important. And so actually, I mean, one of the best algorithms to use would be multiple linear regression. It's very easy to understand when, whenever, like for example, if I teach a, um, an undergraduate course in machine learning or data science, by saying like, okay, you have this simple linear regression, y equals to mx plus b, all the students are able to understand that um, instantaneously. And then like explaining like the X, the M or the, um, the coefficients and the, the magnitude of the coefficient into the, with regards to the importance of the feature, um, they're able to understand that. So for a biologist or a chemist, I would say that like a simple linear regression is a great algorithm to use. And aside from that is the principal component analysis as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so that that is also very nice. Josh made some really interesting videos about drugs dosages um, and the efficacy of the drugs. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, in social sciences, um, where I come from, um, mm -hmm. there is a lot of difference in outcomes based on interaction also. And I know. Um, for a fact that um, it happens in um, drugs also, at least in terms of its efficacy, that um, some of those drugs uh, might interact or the components uh, within the drugs interact with each other uh, and might not mm -hmm. yield the results that are optimal or at least expected. And I'm just wondering, multiple regression uh, does not actually um, account for these interactions. So what are some of the tools that you use to ensure that um, these unintended um, consequences um, aren't um, as a um, aren't a result of um, using simplified techniques like uh, multiple regression. On the other hand, if you use complicated tools um, like artificial neural networks, then uh, we have a huge problem to answer for, which is uh, the black box. Um, mm -hmm. These models are not very interpretable, um, and uh, drug development is probably the last field where you would want to use um, such models which are not interpretable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a very great question. Um, yeah, so first off, actually, I my, my, my research team, our research lab, we've written an article um, 
a book chapter about this very topic. Uh, the topic of the book chapter was towards the revival of interpretable QSAR models. So QSAR is standing for quantitative structure, activity, relationship. And so what we do is we apply machine learning to predict the biological activity of compounds with respect to the chemical structure. So meaning that if the chemical structure will change, then they are able to have biological activity change as well. And so back in the days, people were using linear regression and molecular descriptor to explain the properties of molecule. And with the introduction uh, with more high throughput data, with more heterogeneous data, uh, like before, I mean, a, a typical data set would be comprising of 20 to 30 compounds. And so a linear regression would suffice. But then when there's bigger data and the data becomes more heterogeneous, then there's introduction of other machine learning algorithms, like to, to handle like high dimensional data, like PCA, principal component analysis, would be a good choice to reduce the dimension and, and, uh, and also to explain the contribution of each feature to the model. Uh, with the introduction of like deep learning artificial neural network, they're able to predict or model the biological activity very accurately. Um, but then the, the question is, the thing is it requires large amounts of data. But then in biology, you know, like to, to perform just a few experiments costs a lot of money. And in order to generate that massive amounts of data, um, it has to come from industry. So like academia labs, were, were, were a lot much poorer than the industry. Like the big pharma company, they have big budgets for that. Um, yeah, so, so us coming from academia, so we're limited to like smaller data set. And so like more simple tools will work in that respect. And there's actually a paper published that benchmarks deep learning and also like traditional like random forest algorithm. And so they, they saw that deep learning provided like marginal improvement, like less than 1%. And so if if one would have to decide whether to use deep learning or random forest, I mean, less than a percent improvement would not ju justify the usage of deep learning. But then in recent years, when there's more and more data becoming available, I mean, that's becoming a different landscape. So there's a propensity moving toward direction of deep learning and transformer as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, someone who's very naive to the idea, it's very um, hard to believe that um, FD or other regulatory bodies would um, simply um, accept results of studies based on um, simplistic uh, models um, like multiple regression or linear regression. Uh, because as far as I know, um, and I think you mentioned that in one of your papers um, that I was reading, um, that it costs a lot uh, to make drugs. It is almost a process of eight to 10 years. 90% um, of them do not even um, you know, go to market or go to clinical trials. And then uh, by 2015 already, it was uh, an industry worth $60 billion or more. Um, and I was just wondering, if that's true, uh, and I'm glad actually I have you. I've been asking this question to a lot of people, and there's there's a there's a huge rift on both sides. That 
if it takes eight to 10 years to develop a drug and 90% failure rate, how do we actually have a COVID-19 vaccine out there uh, in like what, less than a year? Um, and you know, people are being vaccinated. Um, how did they even get approval? And do we even have, have enough um, confidence in uh, it's going to work or not? Um, there have been people um, who have noticed the adversarial effects um, of that also. Um, right. And, you know, companies, especially social media people, they are deplatforming people um, for raising concerns that it might be uh, something you should um, look twice into. And I'm just wondering where do you stand on that? Right. So, yeah, that's a great question. So, the thing is, like this, like even in Thailand, I, I'm, I'm sure that it's also, there's also similar. Um, regulation as well like a lot of the major granting agency are shifting their focus toward providing funding for research related to COVID. and like in thailand there's several rounds of uh, grants or fundings that are available if you're doing research about like either therapeutic development or vaccine development or also other like social um, aspects of COVID 19 and so there's more research funding for COVID research. And so, and also like even in academia, um, if, you, if you are publishing about COVID-19, some journals will be able to waive um, publication fees for you. Um, major publishers are also making, like they have this thing called paywall. So you have to pay, uh, readers will have to pay to have access to the research article. And so they, they, make it, they made it free for uh, everyone to read. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of um, funding available that allows rapid developments pertaining to uh, new vaccines for COVID. And um, aside from developing a new drug, uh, there's this thing called the drug repurposing or repositioning as well, whereby you're taking an existing FDA approved drug and then you're finding a novel indication. Like for example, HIV drugs have been experimentally um, determined that they're able to also act as a therapeutic agent against COVID-19 as well. Um, and so it's kind of like you're teaching an old drug a new trick. So like typically in research in drug discovery, um, it's impossible to test or evaluate whether a drug is able to bind to all possible drug target. So researchers will test against like one drug target or two drug targets. But then in reality, it could have an effect against another target, which they have never tested before. Like for example, a drug against cancer may be able to cure antifungal disease or antifungal disease will be able to cure cancer. And the reason is because the structure of the proteins related to cancer and antifungal disease have or share similar protein structure. And therefore, because of the similarity, what is able to treat fungal disease will be able to treat cancer disease as well. And so it's kind of like finding similarity and then repurposing the drug. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I think it's a fair enough point that you know if you put more funding into drug development, it might speed up the process. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, um, the the question is that if you're repurposing a drug um, or even uh, if you've created a new drug, um, you still have to do clinical trials. Uh, and the, by, by the nature of um, COVID-19 as global um, dispersion, mm -hmm. it's very hard to actually do that so fast um, where um, vaccines weren't even available for clinical trials in all parts of the world. So what if there are um, different uh, demographics that are causing um, the efficacy in drugs. For example, pe people in China might not respond to the drug that they've developed in US or the one that they've developed in Germany might not work in Africa. What are the um, the most uh, vulnerable population? Are the children, are the women, or are the older people? Um, are there any um, ethnic um, overrepresentation, uh, like African-Americans or Asians or Americans or Europeans. It's, it's a very complicated question. And don't you exactly. think it's a little, it's, it's a little um, early to um, experimentally, um, you know, roll out a vaccine? Um, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't see an alternative either. I mean, in Pakistan, at least you have a choice there. You have a vaccine, mm -hmm. you can either take it or not. Um, I was just wondering, uh, do you just, have you already had your shot um, or where do you stand on that? And then on top of that, right. how, how, how can we address those uh, methodological issues in clinical trials? Right. So actually it hasn't arrived to where I am living. So okay. we're, we're still waiting for that. And as you, you said, it's a very, right? Are you going to get one? Uh, yeah. So if, if, if it comes available, then okay. we'll have to see, you know, like do, <laughs> do our due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. And there's no one size fits all. And so like what works for one population might not work for another. And so that requires a lot of um, studies. Um, it's true that if you have a, an existing drug that have been tested, it will be it will be faster and easier to have it used, uh, like repurposed for another uh, treatment. Um, but then it, there are side effects that can happen. Like a drug will not only bind to the target protein, but it could also bind to off-target protein as well. And because of that, it causes side effects to that, to the patient. Um, yeah, so actually vaccines and drug therapeutic drugs are, um, they're quite different in, in the way that uh, the majority of vaccines, like in the past, is based upon giving like viral proteins or viral fragments, and that will trigger the immune response. Um, but then on the other hand, drugs will be able to bind and inhibit or modulate the uh, activity, preventing it from functioning. Uh, of the viral protein, target protein, or it could be antimicrobial or or anti-cancer uh, related. Yeah. So, in that respect, there's a lot of um, research that that will be required to evaluate whether uh, a potential uh, viral fragment will be able to serve as a vaccine. And so, yeah. So they're 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 pretty much similar, but but quite distinct in itself. 
And like for the most part, I, I'm more into the drug discovery aspect. Um, with respect to vaccine development, that's actually a whole new area, uh, uh, a distinct but related field. What is the um, paper that you've written you're most proud of? Uh, most proud of, right. I think it hasn't been written. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're proud so, of mapping? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I'm proud of all. Um, but then there's another paper that has not been written yet. Um, but I, I think I would be proud of it, but, but it's something for the future. So, yeah, so it, it's kind of like an unwritten chapter. Um, yeah. it's kind of like you're, you're looking forward to that. It's like, you have that mental picture that, okay, one day you're going to publish that paper, but it, it's not yet released. So it's, it's like in, in, in my imagination right now. Uh, but if I have to select from the existing paper, I would say um, there's a paper called the map. Um, yeah, it's my first review article. Um, it's called a practical overview of quantitative structure activity relationship. And so that mm -hmm. paper was written back in 2009, um, where like I pretty much summarized like the, the field of quantitative structure activity relationship, how machine learning is used for drug discovery. And so that was written when I was like a, a new PhD graduate. And it allows me to kind of like take a step back um, and also do due diligence in the field of uh, drug discovery and read more and try to synthesize like a, a small niche that I will be working in uh, back then and that I'm currently working in as of today as well. So I think that review article uh, pretty much defined my research career. And so it kind of laid out the blueprints of the field for me. And it allows me to like take a look at the the field in a high level, like 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 an eagle, you know, like looking down and, and seeing the potential areas or the gaps in knowledge that we could potentially identify and and carve a niche for ourselves. Um, yeah, like like my PhD advisor would always say, when you graduate your PhD, like it would be optimal if you could have like a, a niche area that people will know you for or that you are able to specialize in because um, he said he said kind of like it's impossible to know everything. And so if you have a niche area that you could do very well, then then that would be super, super cool. Yeah. So mm -hmm. so my my feel was pretty much like machine learning with respect to computational drug discovery. So it's kind of like digging a small hole and then going deep, uh, taking a deep dive. Yeah, I don't think it's even possible um, by the nature um, of um, sciences itself to be able to do broad studies anymore. So you have to you know, find your niche. And we're going to be talking about right. some of your papers um, on the show also. But let's get into um, something else. Um, this last year has told us that despite our advancements um, in AI um, and technology and research, uh, there's a lot to be desired. and. Um, there's so many things that we're not prepared for. Uh, one of the books that you uh, talk about um, is um, Kefu Lee's book, um, AI China's um, Silicon Valley and the New World Order. 
um, a fascinating read, um, at least for me. And uh, I was just wondering, what's the uh, future of AI um, in bioengineering, uh, given the fact that uh, we have totally botched up um, the COVID-19 situation, we're totally uh, unprepared for that, um, given the fact that um, it's the same country um, where virus seems to have originated um, where AlphaGo was watched by 250 million Chinese people um, when uh, DeepMind actually first um, played with um, the world champion. And uh, if that's the uh, level of um, preparedness that we have for unforeseeable circumstances, um, do we, can we predict future for any, uh, in a, with any certainty um, at all? Um, there's con consistent um, struggle between US and China in terms of different um, aspects of um, AI leadership and in some aspects, um, U.S. lead, um, and in others, uh, China is probably um, taking over. But what does it mean for um, bioengineering and uh, future of medical technology? Yeah, so super, super great question. So there's another related area, um, the Internet of Things. Um, so, so that is also one of the major drivers, I think, for the future as well. And so everything now is connected to the internet. Um, even, even medical devices are also going online. And so all of these devices will be generating massive amounts of data. Um, even devices in the home, um, like Amazon Echo or um, Alexa. Um, so all of these devices will collect data and they're available and there's this thing called the edge computing um, whereby AI is applied at the source of the data generation. And so with relation to the field of medical technology or biomedical engineering, I would believe that AI and big data will play an ever increasing importance. Um, what what has in the prior century um, has occurred, uh, I think that it will become much more clearer um, in the sense like, for example, there's this thing called precision medicine, where we're making use of the unique information of an individual. Um, because the thing is 99.9% .9 of our human genome are quite similar. And in fact, there's only like 0.001% that's different. And so the difference of just 0.001% will, will lead to a lot of diseases that is different among uh, people of different countries. It is because of the genetic makeup, um, which leads to different protein structure. And therefore, what drugs might work for um, certain groups of people could also cause side effects and might not work for other groups of people because of the genetic uh, mutations, or we, we could call it the polymorphism, not the mutation, but the polymorphism. So um, protein structure will look pretty much the same, but then there will be like some uh, slight replacement, like um, the genetic codon, like the, the, the genetic, the, the nucleotides will be, um, will have a different codon and therefore there will be there will be a different amino acid. So structures will look similar but will be 
slightly different. And so that will lead to, you know, like slightly different metabolism of drugs. Um, and also like, like for example, um, some people could metabolize alcohol, some people cannot. It's because of the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme. Uh, people who are lactose intolerant is because they're not able to metabolize lactose sugar. And so there are subtle differences, but, but also similarities between people. And so because of that, all of these data is very massive. Um, there are more than 30,000 proteins in a human body. And the thing is, if we're able to map all of that in, like, in a digital manner, um, if we're able to harness all of those information, and, and also if we're able to create kind of like a digital copy of an organism, which we are attempting to, but not me, but other researchers are attempting to, um, I think that would be the future. Imagine being able to digitally create an organism that you're able to simulate, and let's say that you develop a drug and then you could test it against this digital organism. And you don't even, you can even bypass, um, I mean, theoretically, you could bypass clinical trials and then you try it on the digital organism. And if it works, then you actually do it on on the on living organism. So I would envision that in the future, virtual cells, virtual organisms would be uh, among one of the major players for the future. And there are some pretty futuristic video from a YouTube channel called, Kurt, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Kurskasat. They have some pretty cool videos Kurskasat, about like- it's a German one. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like a video about like, are we in a simulated world? So, so the thing is maybe in the future, we're able to simulate you know, like entire society. I mean, if we're able to create a digital organism, we might be able to digitally simulate like big society as well, like like a game, you know, like like in Second Life or Minecraft, but you know, like self autonomous. Yeah. But I don't think the question is as simple because we have had these techniques for such a long time. So we have this in vivo and in vitro. Um, experiments which could run um, isolating the cells um, and the DNA structures of um, new diseases and how drugs actually interact with that. And then 70% of the Nobel prizes um, go to um, physiological experiments on animals um, mm. whose uh, uh, we have a continuity between ours and theirs uh, in structures. And I was just wondering if there's a huge question of um, ethics when it comes to human experiments. That is exactly why it's so complicated to have a drug, drug discovery um, process. And with this digital simulation, um, no one actually knows how drugs are actually going to interact with that because it's a very uh, closed system. For example, uh, some of the um, futuristic experiments that actually um, overlap the ethical boundaries was reported mm -hmm. in 2018. Uh, when a Chinese scientist named uh, Jiang Kui shocked the world um, when he announced that twin girls, Lulu and Nana, um, had been born with modified DNA to make them resistant uh, to HIV, um, which he had managed um, using the gene editing tool and CRISPR-Cas9. CRISPR mm -hmm. Yes, and, uh, you know, the, on one side, you have such uh, transgressions um, in medical ethics. Uh, on the other side, we don't really understand um, how to take this research forward. And uh, I was talking to 
the neuroscientist um, Boris Conrad um, earlier on my show, um, he, who does a lot of work in, and he's also a memory champion. Um, he does a lot of work with MRIs. And this seems to be an existential question about, um, it seems like a dead end alley um, in terms of how do we take research forward? You cannot use um, human beings as animals like guinea pigs for the research. On the other hand, you have uh, limitations of in vitro and um, in vivo experiments. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so it, it's a complicated, yeah, it's a complicated uh, topic um, that I think would require a lot more effort um, to to further into. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very good um, point. Also, um, a good time to bring out the question of um, what is this uh, CRISPR? I always had this curiosity and um, how does it actually work? Because what I understand is that our genome contains um, two copies of CCR5 gene and uh, people who carry both defective uh, copies, um, the chances of them having um, HIV is um, quite high. And um, I was just wondering, you know, if, if you genetically modify that, um, there is still 21% chances um, that you have a risk of dying early. So on one hand, you can do this experiment, but instead of that being useful, it can um, have unintended consequences. How does it actually work? Yeah, actually, um, actually, that that is a an area wh where I I've, I haven't really take a deep dive into. Um, so I, I can't really answer that question. Okay. Right. Uh, but that's really interesting. It's kind of uh, dangerous to think um, that, you know, human beings can go to this level where, where you could actually create um, or modify um, exactly. DNA structures. And we have had the history of, uh, I think in, it was in ancient Greek, um, in Spartans, uh, where they would uh, simply um, kill the children who weren't uh, physically fit. Mm -hmm to um, survive um, their tough lifestyles um, and to make sure that only the fittest survive. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this um, this field is uh, very sensitive to a lot of um, people. Um, exactly. but let's talk about um, some of um, the coincidences um, in life. It, it's an enigma still to me that, you know, how um, there, there are so many cross paths in um, people who are meant to uh, meet finally. Because I only found um, last year that uh, Emmanuel uh, Champetier, um, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, was working only two buildings away from me in Sweden in the same city at the oh, same cool. time. And I also realized that we were also working quite close in Sweden by the time you were working in Uppsala. Um, I was also living in Stockholm, uh, working in oh, Ericsson. Yes, exactly. Oh, cool. I, wow. I was studying for a master's year. And it was like 30 minutes only if I knew you were um, there. It would be really yeah. interesting. I was just wondering, uh, what kind of work were you doing at Uppsala? Uh, it was back in 2012. And at the time, I was like a young uh, young instructor. I just, you know, like three years after a PhD. Uh, I met Professor Whitberg uh, in Thailand. Uh, like we were sending one of our uh, PhD students over, and he happened to stop by Thailand, and so we invited him for a uh, a special lecture. And then 
after that, we, we got to discuss about science, about research. And, and then when, when he came back to Sweden and then um, he, he, he emailed and then like provided some opportunities, like, okay, like there's this fellowship, uh, would I be interested in applying? And so, yeah, so that led to like a, a fellowship and then that led to another, uh, a big research grant that we applied together. And then that led to another uh, fellowship. So it pretty much uh, initiated like, um, in like collaborations uh, that we had. Uh, he's like a pioneer in the field called proteochemometric modeling. And at the time I was only involved in like modeling compounds against a single target protein. But then he developed a technique where you could model compounds, several compounds against several target protein. And so it's kind of like leveling up um, the modeling that I've been doing against a single target protein to be able to model it against like several proteins at the same time. And so it was back in 2012 that I went there for about, I think it was like on and off, like uh, I got like a one year fellowship and so yeah back uh, on and off Uppsala and Thailand yeah, and and we also had this three-year research uh grant and then we co-organized in Thailand in 2016 the first international conference on pharmaceutical bio bioinformatic where we brought like researchers from all over the world from Kyoto University uh from the UK European Bioinformatic Institute from Cambridge University um, from over, I think it's, it was like more than 40 countries from Greek, from like, like several countries, China. Yeah. And so Very it, it was an opportunity to network. Yeah. Um, Sweden spends a lot of uh, money in research when it comes to um, biotechnology and uh, medical, I mean, partly because um, there's a, a huge aging population and um, research um, in medicine. Um, is is needed um in some ways more than um, other places where population is younger uh, for example in um asia or in um, africa uh, but just tell me the kind of grants that you have you seem to have a lot of grants and uh, that you've been working on it and uh, what was the major theme is it like drug discovery or is it uh, pharmaceutical um technologies uh, what what have you been working on Right, so most of them are involving like the development of uh, bioinformatics tools, and so involving machine learning as applied to computational drug discovery. So, so that has been a common theme um, in my research and also in the research grants that I have uh, applied to. And so, yeah, so it's a, a small niche that I'm in, like machine learning applied to computational drug discovery. Okay, and uh, I assume you know they would have uh, some really nice labs. At least I did when I was studying there. Um, you know, what kind of uh, machines were you using there? Were they already using um, NVIDIA GPUs? Um, I mean, you have made a video on NVIDIA RTX that you received right. from um, NVIDIA. And I'm just right. wondering how how do you actually use GPUs or TPUs um, in research uh, in um, biomedicine? And did you have to hyper um, parallelize um, a lot of GPUs or what was the infrastructure for that? Yeah, so in Sweden uh, at the time that I was there, uh, it was pretty much predominantly based on CPU. And so really? they have like a supercomputer. Yeah, yeah. So it was based okay. on CPU, uh, but now they, they have a lot of uh, GPU 
facilities for that. I'm not sure if they have the the new DGX one from NVIDIA. Yeah, the, the smaller supercomputer one. Yeah, but when when is that launched? Um, I think that was after the Late last year or early this year, I can't remember uh, exactly. Yeah, but you were there in 2012. 2012. Actually, I was there prior to Uppsala. I was in Lund, uh, southern part of Sweden. It was yeah, one of the best universities. Study. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think it was like in the top hundred or so. Yeah, okay. and definitely uh, a great place to study. Yes, of course. Um, it's such a nice um, atmosphere for. Um, intellectual exchange been there a couple of times um what do you recommend as gpu for um learning because that seems to be at least um, people ask this question a lot um mm -hmm. what gpu would be good for um cv tasks um and other um, intensive um tasks with a lot of uh, um, huge data sets and I was just wondering, on top of my, if you can afford that, and probably um, in really 3080 or 3090, uh, it's probably in the top of line. Uh, but other than that, what can you think? What has your experience been with RTX? Do you still use that? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm experimenting it with respect to performing molecular dynamics simulation. So it's kind of like trying to simulate how protein structure move in a in a simulated water box. So you're able to study about like the protein motion and that will help you to better understand how you can modulate or inhibit the protein function by you know, you know, like putting a drug into the water box and seeing how does it really interact. And so based on the interaction, based on the flexibility, based on the rigidity of the protein structure, then that will help you to understand like how will you be able to you know like find a way to prevent that protein from functioning yeah so so that's pretty much the uh, the usage that i've been using for the uh, graphics card uh but with respect to data science um i believe that google colab has some free gpu that you could make use of and the great thing is that i mean it's for free and so for, for college students starting out, um, obviously there's no big investment that you would have to make. Uh, just sign up for Google and log into Google Colab and you could harness some free uh, GPU, but you have to select the option um, because at default it is a CPU. Yeah, so some, from, so some free GPU computing to use. Mm -hmm. It was certainly a need probably a little bit more if you're um, competing with, um, in, in Kaggle competitions, mm -hmm. and um, there's certainly a limitation for number of hours that you can use that right. also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things um, I do a lot, and I'm totally going to make fool out of myself um, in asking that, but you know, as long as I learn, it's fine. Um, how, how are drugs actually made? You know, is it from the um, herbs that we use in um, traditional medicine, or are they inorganic compounds? Um, I mean, what do I eat when I eat a pill? Yeah, so there, it varies. So some drugs are coming from proteins. Um, some drugs are inorganic compounds. Uh, and also some, uh, most of the drugs are like naturally derived uh, drugs or nature inspired drugs. So a lot of the What's drugs- the percentage? The, What's the percentage of naturally derived versus oh, synthetic drugs? Hmm. I think that naturally derived drugs would account for 
a higher percentage. Um, but then there are, in recent years, there are more synthetic compounds being introduced. Like synthetic compound would be like, you cannot find it in nature. Um, but but most are either naturally derived, like you could just purify it from, from herbs, or you could take that structure from the herbs and then you modify it so that it has better potency, better, uh, they call it the pharmacokinetic property, meaning like they have optimal ability to being able to absorb into the body, being able to distribute, uh, being able to be metabolized by the liver enzyme, cytochrome P450, and, and other you know, like toxicological properties as well. But you don't have a definitive number for a percentage. Right, I, I'm sure there are definite numbers in some recent review articles, yeah. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, there, there's recently been a, a reversal uh, towards integrative mm -hmm. medicine and um, holistic uh, medicine. Um, and as someone who as absolutely despises taking pills or going to hospitals, mm -hmm. um, I normally, you know, uh, go back to herbs and, you know, uh, chamomile mm -hmm. tea and things like this to fix most of the things, unless you really have to. I mean, of course, if you need a surgery or um, some kind of complicated procedure, you have to go to the hospital. Um, and I'm just wondering if drugs are, you know, made of natural um, substances, why simply we cannot use herbs um, in their original form or foods, because foods have the same um, compounds um, or ingredients um, that we use to make drugs. I mean, why does it actually have to um, be in a form? Because we have a lot of traditional doctors. I mean, I'm sure right. um, you have some kind of and Thai version of that and then into Chinese and Greek medicine also. And we have our own um, Eastern version of that. It works uh, pretty fine for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, um, is it only our obstinacy um, in, in trusting the modernism and science or, or basically just doing the same thing? Yeah, so like um, like traditional Chinese medicine or traditional herbal medicines uh, in, in uh, throughout the world, I'm sure there are. Um, but then if you take a look under the hood, like at the molecular level, uh, all drugs function by binding to the target proteins. So if, if you could envision abnormalities that you see, like the proper normal functioning in, in our body, there's over 30,000 proteins. And if you could categorize that into several uh, different functions that they perform, like metabolizing energy uh, production, um, breaking down um, food to make energy, um, physiological functions, uh, delivering oxygen to various tissues in the body. So all of these are performed by proteins and proteins interact with one another and compounds are able to bind to proteins to activate or um, induce such thing called the signal transduction. So it's kind of like a domino effect, like compounds bind to protein and trigger some domino effects and one protein binds to one protein, which also triggers another domino effect. And so all of these, if you think of it, it's kind of like an orchestrated manner, um, like a symphony. So they all interact in a distinct way. And in a deceased state, the interaction will be perturbed. And that could arise from uh, many issues. Either it could be that 
there might be some mutations that might occur. There might be some um, exposure to pollutants that might uh, damage uh, particular DNA, and that could lead to uh, protein change. The protein structure will change. Um, so all of these, if you think of it as like, um, if you think of it as a mechanic, um, if one small unit is not functional, it will lead to a domino effect. Like normally let's say that protein A will bind to B and B, in order for B to work, A has to bind to B. But if A doesn't bind to B, then the downstream effect of that will not work. Yeah. So if you think of it in the grand scheme, they're all interconnected. And so slight changes will also lead to drastic uh, consequences as well. Yes, but then question remains, why cannot we, <clears throat> excuse me, use um, foods and um, herbs and vegetables uh, instead of um, the pills that we make in um, labs and cost a lot of um, money? For example, what I know from um, psychiatry is that, you know, if you're depressed and they give you SSRIs and, you know, for ADHD, you have got Ritalin. What it does basically is that, you know, keep your um, homeostasis um, mm -hmm. where you do not um, lack um, the um, the ideal um, stability uh, from um, the norm. Um, so, for example, if you're too depressed, you, you take something that you elevates your mood and, you know, if you're hyperactive or, you know, you're too energetic and it brings mm -hmm. you down and, you know, to a normal level and in borderline um, situation, then uh, bipolar disorders, they're used a lot. And I think that has been the premise of traditional medicine for a long time. So if you, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, uh, there's, there's an ancient um, there are four temperaments: it's sanguine um, and uh, phlegm, and then um, melancholic, um, and there's one other uh, that I'm missing. Which one is that? Um, Bicolic, I believe. No, maybe. So these are just four uh, different temperaments, and you know, ancient um, doctors would give people medicine and herbs that would bring their um, bring a balance to their temperament so that they can function properly and in a, in a larger uh, 20,000 um, feet view if you look on the medicine that's the whole purpose also to uh, make sure that you know patients get back uh, to their normal position and I'm just wondering how is drug discovery um, any different from what we have already known throughout history right so hmm that's a great question so in, in modern drug discovery, it's based purely on compounds, chemical structures, uh, small molecules that are able to bind at the molecular level to target proteins. Um, let's say that, um, okay, let, I've been doing some research about breast cancer drug development. Uh, there is this enzyme called aromatase, and they're responsible for converting androgen to estrogen. And so, when there is a overproduction of estrogen, so the aromatase enzyme is the drug target, meaning that we want to inhibit the function of the enzyme. And if we're able to inhibit the function, then we will have a lowered production of estrogen, and therefore that will curb or inhibit the uh, proliferation of breast tumor. Um, the thing is, if the food contains 
bioactive compounds that resemble a drug that will be able to bind to the aromatase. If we are able to find such a food that contains the structure, then they could definitely be a therapeutic food. But the thing is, there might not be. And therefore, in order to discover that, um, scientists will have to perform this thing called the high throughput screening, meaning that they have like this large collection of compounds and they will individually test this millions of compounds against one enzyme to see which of the million compounds will be able to bind and inhibit and lead to a phenotypic change, meaning uh, a reduction of breast tumor. And therefore, if we're able to identify a structure, let's say that, okay, it's found in, let's say that curcumin, and it's found in turmeric, then, then we could also say, okay, maybe turmeric could be uh, a preventive uh, medicine for that as well. Yeah. And actually, there are several coming from food, um, and, and they're termed bioactive compounds. Yeah, so we have ginger we have coming from ginger, uh, we have curcumin from turmeric, and there are several more, uh, resveratrol from wine, red wine, uh, flavonoid. Uh, so so th these are also interesting classes of uh, natural compounds. So interesting that you talked about that, you know, which one of those enzymes would, uh, you know, have the largest effect um, on the phenotype. I'm just wondering, it's kind of a feature engineering uh, of sorts where you find uh, the best one that acts um, in an optimal manner. And I'm just wondering if you have a database for all these um, enzymes um, or other mm -hmm. compounds, um, if you may, why don't we have the database for the foods um, through which we have extracted the enzyme or are, are they found? And I'm not sure, and I'm totally being naive here. Uh, do mm -hmm. we really have kind of a food um, and those relationships between the, its ingredients? And um, then finally, once we uh, feature engineer uh, the best um, enzyme for the phenotype, we could also find out which food is that is. And instead of prescribing the medicine, we just simply prescribe mm -hmm. that food a little bit more. Ah, that's a great question. I believe there are databases that provides a collection of all uh, bioactive compounds and the sources of those. Um, in fact, there's a database called Chembo and also PubChem, which houses a large collection of chemical libraries. And they do tell like, what is the origin of the compound? Is it a synthetic compound? Is it a natural compound? And if it's a natural compound, then is it coming from uh, which or particular organism? It could be coming from um, herbs or it could come from animals or uh, reptile as well. Like there are some, like for example, anti-cancer peptide coming from snake or the skin of frogs. And so yeah, it could come from all sorts of uh, organisms, even marine organisms as well. But I do understand that on the other side, you know, if, if you take traditional medicine too seriously, we also have like snake oil sellers um, and charmers who would, you know, simply um, fool you into buying anything. But don't you think um, on a broader, just for um, argumentation's sake, we have mm -hmm. we should have departments in, in university where we study traditional medicine also, because I mean, if that's so, if that's, that has been popular throughout the history, uh, isn't there an element of truth um, that's worth exploring? Um, in those 
um, therapeutic techniques um, and the ancient wisdom that's in the books. Um, do, do you think that it would be helpful if we actually collected that information and did more research on radiation medicine as well? Yeah, that, that is actually a great question. And there are some research that's kind of like debunking like like traditional myths. Um, like like there are uh, some studies using cheminformatics, like using machine learning to learn about like how does the traditional Chinese medicine, how are they functioning? As you, you mentioned about the four temperaments. And so they're trying to link traditional Chinese medicine to systems biology to see like, okay, how do they superimpose onto one another um, like for one thing, okay, is, is it like just a folklore or can we find biological proof that they do modulate the function? And there are several interesting studies and they do try to correlate like, okay, each of the uh, temperaments into, into uh, modulating a particular pathway of the biochemical metabolism. And so there are some interesting study into that area as well. Yeah, for example, um, I think homeostasis is probably um, the modern version of saying the same thing, which is, you know, a balance in the temperaments. Um, mm -hmm. So if I were to give you an example, um, because I've studied that for uh, some time, you know, just for fun, how it works. Right. Uh, so in, in some of the Asian medicine, you have three parts um, of your um, body that should work in tandem with each other. So, for example, your brain, um, your heart um, and your liver. Uh, and all three of them is kind of a triad. And in that triad, uh, if there is an imbalance, um, so the 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 color of your eyes um, and the color of your urine and a lot of other symptoms um, that these ancient doctors actually check tells you where the problem lies. Um, for example, if uh, it's too white um, in the urine, it probably is an indication mm -hmm. that you, you're in, in a lot of uh, mental stress, which means that you should be eating foods like almond or walnuts or uh, other things um, which would empower your brain. And I was just wondering if that resonates with you also, because we know for sure that some foods are good for uh, some things. For example, you don't want to eat um, a really heavy lunch if you plan to run a marathon. Um, and certainly um, fast food every day is not very good for your uh, brain function also. But do, do you see the element of truth in that? Yeah, it's definitely, um, but, but then, I'm also not really a healthy, uh, I, I don't really, I try to have a healthy diet. Um, yeah, but, but definitely if all of those are, are also contributing, um, let's see, you, you mentioned about one of the temperament as being the liver. And if you're, if we compare that to modern medicine, then it's, it's equivalent to the cytochrome P450. So these are the liver enzymes. And so, and the family of cytochrome P450 enzymes, there are like hundreds of proteins in that family. And so the challenge is which of those uh, protein family are they? They are the liver enzyme, but which of them are responsible for the uh, disease or the abnormalities of the organ function um, that, that might be in, in the patient? And yes, food, if, if we, we take in a lot of junk food, right? So it will lead to our body having to function much more. Um, if we have food that are uh, pretty much like processed, uh, baked, not not baked, um, uh, fried, uh, then then your body will, will 
will function much more. Um, I don't have the technical term for that. Yeah, so the thing is to to keep the diet at a minimal, like, like in terms of processing it, like if you could boil it. Um, but, but the thing is the vitamins might be degraded. Um, yeah, I think it's my line of thought is not <laughs> fully functioning. Fair right. enough. You know, we're just kind of this explorative <laughs> yeah. conversation of uh, what is right. possible. Uh, but let's also talk about, um, you know, these conversations are very important to happen, even uh, if we might not have the answers um, at the moment or even in the future. Right. But do you foster this conversation in schools? We talked uh, about uh, the need for teaching undergrads um, and graduate students um, R and Python, or at least give them some... Um, encouragement or tools to get started with the programming that would help them uh, explore their fields. And one of the great things about data science is that, um, I don't know, for me at least, um, it's that um, it doesn't require you to come from a certain background, like computer sciences or physics or right. um, engineering. You know, this is kind of a tool that everyone can use. It's kind of a means to an end. And I was just wondering, uh, what is that um, fascinates you about data science? Yeah, so the fascinating part about data science is making sense of data. Um, I like the data visualization aspect of it. And lately, I like the um, the high of uh, developing bioinformatic tools that other scientists could use um, in their own research. Um, like lately, we have been developing a lot of web application whereby users could just input the compound or the protein and it and then we'll be able to make a prediction based on the model that we have developed using some machine learning algorithms. And aside from that, I think it's the data visualization and making sense of the data and finding the gaps in knowledge in order to drive more further experiments, um, which our collaborator could, could also do. And so I think it's about finding the, the missing gaps in knowledge in biology and the um, the feeling of developing something that could cure uh, disease and also the, the, the implications and the impact that it will have. Yeah, so, so that is what driving most of the research that we're doing. Yeah, so, so it's a sense of satisfaction for them. There's one problem with um, this whole um, you know, development cycle of um, data science. Um, when I was young, um, I used to make websites um, writing HTML. Um, okay. It was kind of the new thing there. Um, so you have different tags and you have to enclose um, your text within that and then you can choose to bold it, um, mm -hmm. just like Markdown now. Right. But then um, at some point, you know, Adobe launched a software, uh, which used to be called Dreamweaver. Where you simply have okay. to you know drag and drop pictures and you know right, right, right. create links and you know things that pretty much like um, word software um, now. So you can simply do anything with the text by choosing select. What you text see is what you get. Type of exactly, tool, right? exactly. But that yeah, I also oh, use Dreamweaver as well. Oh really? Yeah, Dreamweaver from Macromedia, right? Before Adobe yeah. bought it. Yeah. Super cool awesome software. Tool. But I'm just wondering why is um, data science um, not uh, treading the same path? Because at some point it's 2021. You know, people should be able to uh, run their analysis using a graphical user interface. And uh, we have something called R Commander in R, but it's not very intuitive. By now, um, you should have been able to, 
you know, manipulate with your data sets um, within the um, software without actually having huge delays, no matter how big the data set is, because, you know, you could use some kind of optimization uh, for the um, rows and columns. And then, you know, the whole life cycle should have been um, kind of uh, what you see, what you get. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's still not there. And I'm just wondering, why does it have to be um, so slow? It excludes a lot of people. Um, I do understand from my experience, unfortunately, a lot of people are discouraged um, by the complications of um, doing uh, coding in R and Python and the sheer process of, you know, starting um, to install a software and reading documentation. People are not used to it. And, and I have, mm -hmm. I, I can totally get why they think that, especially if they're not coming from a mathematics um, background. Why do you think that we're still stuck on um, code lines? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I truly understand that. And I mean, myself coming from a non-technical uh, background, I also started from uh, using, there are tools for, point and click, uh, drag and drop. So so they're more like workflow. So I, I had a couple of videos, um, like for example, Orange is a drag and drop. You could build a workflow for creating your machine learning model. Like for example, you could have a node for reading CSV data and then you connect that node when you read in the CSV da data, it's co comparable to reading it using pandas and then you're assigning it into a data frame. And so with that node, you read in the CSV data or it could be an Excel file. And then you create automatically a data frame. And then you could drag and, and then you could link that data frame that you have read from the file. And then you could use it to uh, perform feature selection or feature engineering. And also you could then link it to create a machine learning model. After that, you could generate a plot and then you could link it to a node that will save it as a file. And so you could actually create some awesome workflow uh, using Orange. And there's another awesome tool called uh, Nime. So both of them are pretty much like the what you see is what you get type of uh, tool that you could build. Pretty complicated machine learning workflow as well. You could perform, I believe, all of the tasks that you would normally do in manually in coding in Python. And so when you're coding in Python or, or in R, it feels pretty much like you're building a house, but then you're you also have to like manually like brick by brick right and then you have to decide like what 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 material what type of brick you will use and how will you lay the brick to build the house and the thing is it might not be an optimal way because when you're doing it manually but then there are tools that are starting to be released um recently there's a tool uh, a web application using streamlit they it allows you to create like a, a template I think they call it the boiler, boiler maker, was it? Boil, boiler maker template, where you kind of like click like what you want uh, in your machine learning workflow. Like for example, you want to import your data, you want to build a random forest model, then you click on generate and it will generate the code for you. So you don't have to uh, repeatedly like, okay, import library, read in the data, split the data, build the model. So it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty, what do you call it? It's like repetitive. Uh, in my own workflow, I would create like a, like a general template. Like for example, read in the necessary libraries, read in the uh, CSV data, uh, perform feature uh, generation, feature 
uh, engineering and then perform model building and then per, uh, compare the performance of different model. So I would have like a general workflow, but then for each study that we do, we might need to do some tweaking. We might want to develop a new feature. We might want to hack some of the um, uh, parts of the model building. Like for example, if your data is imbalanced, then you have to figure out how will you make the classes to be balanced. Otherwise there will be like biases in your prediction. Yeah. So. In our lab, we, we do create like a template and then we modify the template. So that will allow us to uh, work much faster. Yeah, but, so, so I think it's a choice Yeah, that you could choose to code it manually or to use uh, an existing point and click software or to generate your own uh, template. But the thing is people are reinventing the wheel over and over again. I think that's like the, one of the slow uh, process that we're all doing. Um, I think Streamlit is still, you know, a lot of um, code-based software. What I'm thinking is, you know, feel free to steal my idea, and I hope someone actually does that. Um, okay. In PyCarrot is quite close um, to what I would say um, is more, uh, it resonates with citizen data scientists. For example, what you have to okay. do is that you um, simply use um, their boilerplate template and mm -hmm. um, paste that in um, Python. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever ID or Jupyter mm -hmm. you're using. And then you can simply, um, you know, specify the arguments. So for example, if you're using a classification, you can choose different uh, matrices that you want to put in, um, the kind of uh, um, transforms you want to use for categorical um, data or mm -hmm. nominal data or thing else. Um, and you can also choose um, the imputation techniques. So there are a lot of parameters that right. you could actually um, compute with that. Well, one of the things that I actually talked with the creator of um, PyCarrot, also Muiz, by the way, he's from Pakistan Moise. also, very interesting guy. Okay. Um, so they have their Slack community also in um, time to time I contributed to that also. And I gave them this idea, but there are only like three people that probably don't have um, enough work for that. But my idea was that, you know, if you can actually give this option for people to individually specify the parameter for um, all the, uh, um, you know, situations, then you can also make a checkbox for that. So I mean, why bother actually writing that um, at all? So, you know, um, just like classification model. So I, I want um, AUC and ROC curve and precision and all these things. And then with the regression model, I want and this, this, this uh, learning model. So you can uh, checkbox um, the random forests or uh, near nearest neighbor and other things. So yeah, instead of you know making people do the work, you know, tinker with the text, um, would by the way, some of them would, from my personal experience, some one some people, you know, are very confused by um, the commas in between different parameters um, or the parentheses mm -hmm. or the commas, uh, like inverted commas also. So instead of giving them this room to make mistakes and confuse them, you know, simply use checkboxes and. Um, create something out of that because that's something you're already doing and everything else is working on the back and at least for the pie card. And I was just wondering, is that kind of an approach that you think um, would make it more easier for uh, a lot of students? Yeah, so PyCard is an amazing package and I've done some tutorial videos about that as well. And um, actually PyCard is a type of auto ML automatic machine learning. And there are in recent years, a lot of, a lot of developments into this area, auto ML. Um, actually, um, from my own research group, 
back in I think early 2000, in the late 2000, like before 2010, we published a book chapter and we developed this thing called AutoWika. So Wika is a point and click software. And so back at the time, it's like, we're repeating the task of, you know, like repeatedly opening the program, clicking on open file, select the input file, and then we we would repeatedly um, perform feature selection. And then we would repeatedly uh, modify the, the, the seed number. Like we would have to manually click it like a thousand times if we're to build like a uh, parameter optimization. And so what we did was we created like a macro where it will generate a file and then it will automatically run off all of the potential uh, parameter optimization. And then after that, we coded it in um, in Python, like several years later, we coded in Python and then we used WX Python to create a GUI. Um, so users can just input the data, click on run, and it will perform uh, parameter optimization. And actually we published one book chapter in in Springer uh, called AutoWika. And so as you, as you mentioned, instead of leaving room for making errors, that software allow us to streamline our prediction workflow to be much quicker. We just, what we only need to do is prepare the input data. And then after that, everything downstream will be automatic because we're repeatedly doing the same thing. Uh, but but the thing is like this, that the template might work in one scenario. But the thing is, if the data changes, if there's a drift, then we have to optimize the, the code. And so the template might be irrelevant. And so like, for example, we, we might be, it might require us to modify steps number five or steps number eight. And so if we're able to code it manually, then we could make the proper adjustments. Yeah. So the, the workflow might work for most of the cases, but but it's not like a one size fits all. So it might not work for all cases as well. And there are um, like, there, there might be some patterns in the data um, in the future that might not be relevant um, to the model that was built 10 years ago. And therefore it needs to be updated. And therefore, if we're able to uh, code it manually, then it will allow us to modify the workflow. Apart from the data analysis um, side, that's a good you know, segue now to get into data engineering aspect also, where mm -hmm. you actually curate and generate and you know, transform data. And that's where 60 or 70% of the time in the exactly. whole uh, pipeline uh, is spent. Right. And I was just wondering, what could we do to make it more seamless process? One of the things that you could um, do is, of course, um, create quality checks while collecting data, but that's not always in your hands uh, in many situations, especially the uh, industrial situations where companies give you data and then you have to fix it yourself um, because mm -hmm. you know you don't have enough power to ask them to implement policies to um, make sure the data quality is good. Um, right. And that leads us to um, the famous proverbial um, rule, uh, which you have back on your wall also, like garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. And, and uh, I was just wondering, are there tools for uh, data cleaning also uh, at, at some point, like, like built-in thresholds where you could um, imputate according to rules, for example, 20% or more data is missing, just drop the column. If that's less than that, you know, use some um, mean replacement and things like that. And that sure has to do a lot with the nature of 
um, the data also, so you can simply blindly uh, apply imputations. Is there a way we can simplify that as well? Yeah, so like what, what I would do is to manually perform it. Like some, sometimes I would prototype it manually by uh, performing the analysis in a Microsoft Excel. And if it worked, then I'll code it in Python to, to automate the process. So do it manually, and then once that work, automate the process. And so, and then use the, the script that we created uh, either in R or Python for applying it on a new data set. And so that will allow us to automate and uh, perform the analysis much quicker for the future. Uh, unless the, the new data breaks the workflow, then we have to optimize the code again. And so uh, in a loop, yeah. So as long as the data works, it's okay. If, if something happens to the data patterns, disrupt the, the current workflow, then we have to make adjustments. Mm. Yeah, my company works a lot with um, these companies, which has, well, the simple rule that we're talking about do not apply to them. So there, there's a whole data engineering team that um, does the data ingestion uh, from um, external data sources um, and internal databases, um, websites, e-commerce stores, and that's a huge task. Um, and then you have to you know uh, connect that uh, to some kind of um, central data warehouse and uh, data lakes, and then uh, on top of that, you could use data breaks or other um, analysis frameworks. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering if, if because at some point Excel are useless. Um, you know, you have exactly. to use uh, PySpark or something else that does mm -hmm. uh, large scale data, especially if it's coming from uh, NASA spaceship um, or Google or Facebook uh, with an enormous amount of data. So what can we actually do? Um, to, I mean, that might not be your field in some way, but you know, out of um, curiosity or you know, just wild imagination, what could be some of the checks that we could use to make sure that we have good quality data in these large um, environments? Yeah, so uh, different data will require different steps for processing it. So that would predominantly based on the domain knowledge so like data and biology it would require a certain set of uh, pre-processing to make it work, to have higher quality. Uh, data in chemistry will need an, another set of instruction. Like for example, um, chemical data needs to be standardized, meaning like, for example, um, the chemical structure needs to be uh, norm normalized. Like in a given chemical structure, there might be like several tautomers uh, or a different isoform of the, uh, of the compound. And therefore, we have to figure out like which one is applicable uh, at a given pH, which one is applicable. And so that will, will require domain knowledge. And so I, I, I would I would imagine that uh, data coming from industry or coming from other fields, social sciences, it will require specialized domain knowledge in order to make a decision like how to best handle um, because, because there, there's not like a one size fits all. And so once we're able to figure out like in this scenario, we do this, in this scenario, we do this. If we're able to do that, then we could automate that by writing a script to perform the analysis. Um, actually, that's what we're doing right now. Um, before we used to perform the data creation manually and that took us about half a year for one data set. And then we automated that using Python and I'm hoping to publish that soon. Um, actually, we've developed it 
in the lab for personal use inside our own lab for the past five years, we're able to reduce six months worth of data curation into five seconds, no, two seconds. So upload the data and it will perform all of the pre-processing that we would normally do in back in the days for like maybe two to six months. And we able to streamline that into two seconds. So upload the data and within two seconds, you get the pre-process curated data. And so that is based on our, you know, like manually, uh, repetitively, like for thousands or 10,000 of time doing it, like, you know, thousands of time. And then, and then one day we we're kind of like, we got tired of doing it manually. It's like, okay, let's do it automatically. And yeah, so started to learn Python and make it work. Yeah, but I think uh, the, the schema for your data must have been um, similar in order to do that because you know if you run cron right. jobs, that assumes mm -hmm. that your, your schema of the database is the same. And I was just wondering how would that translate um, to unstructured data, uh, for example, NLP um, right. tasks or uh, some kind of SQL injection that um, screws up your data? Anything? So what would you do in that situation? Yeah, so actually we pretty much worked with structured data for the most part. Uh, tabular data. Uh, there is one project where we worked on analyzing literature data, like performing text mining. Um, we did manually, like like create a dictionary of words, um, grouping them, um, performing manually. Uh, back in the days, I think it was like 2009, we published a paper by analyzing uh, literature about molecular imprinting. What we did was we developed like a sliding window. So it the program was developed by a PhD student of mine. So he coded this in C language, uh, C++. And so what he did was created a, uh, like we call it like a, it will read and slide like a sliding window. And then it will also have like peripheral vision. It will look at a particular term and it will compare it with the uh, with the output, the expected output, is it correct? If not, then it will learn that, okay, this particular word and the environment, like two to three words upstream and downstream, uh, what words are they? And if it's not um, the, yeah. So the thing is we're trying to perform the task of named entity recognition like from a particular paper, we want to identify the compound name. And so like for example, if it's reading the first word, the, and then it will look at the left and on the right, what words are they? If the, then to the left, there's nothing. To the right, the molecule. Okay, and then the next word is molecule is, and then the fourth word will, will be the name of the compound. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if we do it, if we slide it in, and so the third word will be the name of the compound. And so if we have to slide it for the fourth time, then the compound will be at the center. And then what is to the left and what is to the right? So what we did was like, you know, like manually, uh, like a semi uh, training machine where the human, like uh, the, the PhD student, what he did was manually trained word by word. So he created a program where the program will slide word by word, and then he will have to say whether that is the compound name. And if it, it is yes, then it will learn that, okay, this is the compound name and to the left and to the right, what words are they? And then over time, over like maybe 50 iteration, it will start to make an educated guess that, okay, 
before the word is and before the word molecule, okay, the fourth word will be the uh, upstream to that will be, I mean, downstream to that will be the name of the compound. Yeah, so, no. so we did that like pretty much manually. Have you used any um, NLP tools like Hugging Face or um, LTE no. or any transform? Yeah, so it was coded in, in C and no Python libraries were used. So that okay. was back in 2009, yeah. Uh, one of the questions um, that I really wanted to ask you because it's very nauseating, um, at mm -hmm. least for me when I use write papers in R Studio is Markdown. Um, okay. And the latex um, in R Studio is so broken, you know, with this Nitter package, at least when I last tried that, uh, it wasn't ready to, you know, write papers in that with R code embedded in that. Um, and, you know, a lot of people would simply use Overleaf uh, for the right. latex formatting of their um, right, my favorite. Yeah, exactly. And I was just wondering why our studio is still not able to fix their, um, you know, markdown system in which they could embed the bibliography as simple as Overleaf. I mean, why is that so hard? Right. I'm not sure. I think we have to contact the developer of that, right? Oh, so I, I did, think there's Nitter and there's Art Markdown, right, for mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah, I think the developer is at E. Um, he has a Chinese name. Can't remember right now. Something starting with a Y. They're very slow in answering for some reason. You know, I've been um, talking to them about um, mm -hmm. some of the um, capabilities of R, and you just simply right. don't reply. I mean, I, I don't think there are so oh. many people available for uh, communications um, with clients um, at R. Um, but, but anyway, you know, I would love to love for them to actually figure out this um, mm -hmm. latex thing so people don't actually have to use right. um, external softwares. Now, let's get to some of the things um, that are most important for industrial clients. Mm -hmm. um, and also now it's becoming important for academic clients also, which is deployment of your apps. Um, okay. And that has been always a problem for, um, you know, less technically savvy people. Now we have Streamlit and um, our Shiny and dashboards and everything else. But even with that, uh, if you want to, <clears throat> sorry, if you want to scale your apps in AWS or Azure or, you know, make it um, easily um, and accessible for a lot of people across the globe, then that you actually have to have a separate DevOps guy, um, at least in bigger companies for that. What are some of the things that we could use as, um, citizen data scientists, or let's say the beginners, um, to be able to showcase your work, especially in research labs and uh, PhD to students um, who are almost like slaves, you know, with no pay, so they don't have money to pay other people to, you know, um, showcase their work. Um, so right. what would be the easiest way for them to um, deploy their apps? Yeah, so I would say Striblet if you're using Python. Uh, there are also other alternatives as well, like Dash. Uh, it's from the creators of Plotly. And so those would be friendly for the citizen data scientists. Uh, for those more into coding, there's uh, Flask and there's Django. Um, for R is obviously R Shiny. Um, so I would recommend Streamlit and Shiny. Yeah, for the typical data scientist. Um, you know, the, the process of I mean, for example, I made um, an app for my own research um, in right. our studio. And the process is um, not as straightforward as most people think. So you have to have a, a UI component and you have to have um, a server. server component. 
yes. And then um, you have seen it do a lot of uh, tweaking in order to get this ready. I mean, one of the things that I really like about RStudio is that there are no additional configurations that you have to make. Um, you simply have uh, your data set ready and then you, know, you configure the UI and server component and um, you deploy the app and it's going to be there in the cloud for everyone to actually um, reach without any cost uh, um, to mention that. Uh, but I was just wondering, it's not very scalable uh, at some point. For example, if you have a million customers um, or let's mm -hmm. say um, other people who would just visit your um, app, what would be a better solution to scale it? Um, uh, and do you think Streamlit would be a better alternative um, to, to know you actually convert that from R to Python and then deploy that to AWS? Or uh, what do you think generally? What, what's your idea? Yeah. So I would believe that both Shiny and Streamlit they're on like equal uh, level. So they're good for deploying a, a, mini a minimal viable, what do you call it, a minimal viable product, a minimum viable product, MVPs. So that will be allowing us to test the hypothesis. Like, okay, we have an idea and we want to develop like a quick application. So Streamlit and R Shiny will be able to do that. Uh, in academia where, um, okay, we might not have the facilities to afford like a big team to develop that, like a full stack. Um, I would say Streamlit and R Shiny is the, the friendly uh, platform for academia. Um, if you're going more into software engineering, I would recommend to um, maybe chat with uh, Forrest Knight. He's a software engineer. And he is he's collaborating with Kenji right now. Um, like Ken developed this leaderboard for his YouTube channel where uh, he, he wanted to measure the engagement of his subscriber, like like how many comments or how many likes the, the subscriber are making on his YouTube channel. And so he developed an initial version of the leaderboard in, Shine, in, in Streamlit. And now he's partnering up with First Night and Tina Huang and they're using this uh, MERN stack, M-E-R-N. And so I think it's MongoDB and there's React and Node.js. Yeah, so so I'm not really into, uh, a software engineering guy, but but that would be like scaling to uh, much more sophisticated. How is he doing that? Is it like a YouTube API where uh, he could get the data or is it simply web scraping? Yeah, so that requires the YouTube API. So anyone can apply for a YouTube API. And in order to make the request, um, you have to use, you have to have a, a special like permission. And so under the hood uh, on the server, uh, you have to pull the data from the from YouTube via the API. And then uh, depending on the tech stack that you're using, if it's Streamlit, then you you pull the data and then you you have it in the form of like a maybe a, like a JSON format and then you could display display it using pandas uh, right inside Streamlit. But with the MERN stack, um, I mean that that's not that's outside my domain. But that would be more for scalability and yeah. So I would I would say if you're scaling it to at the industrial level, then you might need to explore other uh, technology mm -hmm. like like MERN MERN. Yeah, I think that so, that, that would be like yeah. full blown software engineering. I mean, Facebook is exactly. um, run on Mern also. Um, right, I was just wondering, right. did you also have experience with um, Tableau and Power BI? Um, and what applications do you think um, it's suitable for, um, despite its um, huge price tag? 
Right. So actually, I've applied for an academic license for Tableau, but I haven't really used it a lot. Um, Power BI, I haven't, I haven't used it at all. Um, yeah, but I know, I know. John David has an awesome channel, um, and he has some tutorials that he has on Udemy as well. I think he has like more more than almost ten courses of, mm -hmm. on Tableau and Power BI. So for those interested in those two, um, you could check out how to get an analytics job. And John David is the uh, the founder of the channel. Mm -hmm. And I think, but that limits our our options in terms of um, analyzing data in terms of machine learning and, um, and neural networks because that only visualizes the data. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'm wrong or uh, because last time I, I, think, I think Power BI, you could, you could have a, you could import Python. So okay. that Python code could probably pre-process the data. And once it's pre-processed to a certain form, then you could visualize the data. Mm -hmm. But I haven't Let's, really tried that yet. Okay. Let's get back to something that you are already expert in. Um, so you wrote a paper um, on reproducible computational drug discovery. And you argued that um, it is therefore inevitable that the field of computational drug design would adopt um, an open approach towards the collection, curation, and sharing of data code. Um, and to me, it um, sounds very unlikely that uh, big companies who are pouring in billions uh, in drug discovery and research that they're going to, you know, simply uh, open their um, research data for public to collaborate with, um, which is kind of sad. Uh, but it seems like we are kind of in a um, stalemate position here. So how do you see that, you know, we can foster a collaborative environment for um, drug discovery and, and knowledge sharing without actually, um, you know, having these companies uh, help with their own data? Right. So there are several initiatives, even from big pharma companies. Um, they're called open innovation, whereby they share publicly their uh, otherwise like private data, so that other scientists could have access to. Um, but then th this is pretty much limited to uh, diseases like neglected tropical uh, diseases, uh, where the big pharma really don't really have much interest in because they're not really making a lot of money up the, out, of, out of that. And so, yeah, they, they are providing some data for free. There are, but, but then for those that are um, like more, you know, like for the masses, um, I, I think they're, they might be holding back on those kind of data. How is that working with natural um, sciences? Because in social science, there's a huge pushback against um, monopoly of um, these publishers where you have to pay like 85 euros for reading one research paper. And people are kind of moving to um, Arvix and uh, Medium and other publication platforms. Uh, but still, most of the academic publication happens um, through these um, publishers, um, nature, um, nature right. communications, the different variants of that. Um, and I, for one, see it's a very positive trend that, you know, people are publishing results. And then we have research get also, you can simply message uh, one of the authors and, you know, they're, right. they're more likely to give you their paper. Um, what is the trend in natural sciences? Yeah, so 
back in the days, most of the prestigious uh, academic journals are subscription based. And actually several universities around the world are subscribing to these at a very massive amounts of money. And most are behind a paywall. So meaning that the university needs them to make a, a special agreement with the big publishers in order for their researchers to have access to the data. Um, in recent years, uh, in the past decade, there have been open access publications. Um, like some notable journal is from PLOS One, PLOS uh, Family, Public Library of Science. And other big publishers are also catching up. Uh, like, like, for example, Nature, uh, now it became Nature Springer. They have this, um, what do you call it, scientific report, which is competing against um, PLOS One. And former member of PLOS One and also O'Reilly, they partnered together to create this journal called PeerJ, uh, which I also like. Um, it is a subscription-based journal, meaning that you pay a one-time fee, like $500. Uh, I got in early, so, so I paid $300. So I have a lifetime membership. And so I could publish like five papers a year for free. Um, given that I'm like a, a sole author of the paper, um, if I have other co-authors, other co-authors have to pay for the membership. And they also have like a per article basis as well. So, so the thing with all of the open access is that instead of the university paying it, and then the reader will have to pay for access to the paper, open access means that the researcher will pay for it for the publication cost and then the reader will be able to access it for free. Uh, ways for bypassing that is to share the unformatted paper on archive or other similar uh, websites. Uh, like for example, in chemistry, they have the chem archive or there are similar services that are related. They're called preprint. So they're, they have to be unformatted. Otherwise it will go against the, uh, the copyright issues against the uh, publisher where they formatted your paper. But if you have the unformatted but accepted version, that's perfectly fine. So you could also publish it in traditional journals like from Nature, and then you have uh, another unformatted version shared on Archive. Or another one would be to request it directly from the authors on ResearchGate or even email them. But don't you think it's kind of indirect ex exclusion of a lot of um, people around the world are not able to afford uh, the kind of um, both to the publication prices and, and the subscription prices to be able to right. read those papers. For example, if you're asking 85 euros for someone um, in Kenya or um, in Uganda or even in India, that's not something that they are more than happy to pay uh, depending on um, where did they fall in terms of um, their purchasing power? And I'm just right. wondering, a lot of hate has been uh, generated even by the authors. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, I'm pretty sure that you know, if someone sent you a message uh, and asked for a paper that you've written um, that they cannot afford to buy, you would be more than happy to actually I'm happy to send them over a copy, yeah. Exactly, and I think most people right. are like that. But you know what? Why is that these publishing um, companies don't understand that this model is not sustainable anymore um, and I think one of the most successful reactions to that um, materialized in the form of Sci-Hub um, and uh, LibGenesis. Uh, right. I'm not sure how much you can talk about that but um, how do you see that development? 
Yeah, so I mean, they're in pretty much in the dark area. And so, yeah, so, so those are, yeah, so they're, they're, they're making more accessible for the general masses, but then it goes against the copyright issues. And so, as you might know, I mean, they're, the, the websites are changing con continuously, like what worked today might not work tomorrow. Um, so in the long term, I think it's it's still going to be an issue because publishers are going to have to make money, and as part of that, they're having they're also going to be charging money. I mean, someone has to pay for their uh, overhead. They they have to hire uh, teams. They have to have web servers. Or another one would be if there is a way to develop a new type of publishing. I mean, we we could create a new type of um, you know like uh, on the blockchain. Yeah. Okay. Instead of a cryptocurrency, we have like a like a blockchain that pretty much like the review process, the peer review process will occur on the blockchain. And oh, that's a huge issue accepted, for right? a lot of people because you know um, peer review process is, um, at least in my opinion, very corrupt. And you know I've got facts to support that also. You know they're they on on boards of probably the best journals are only um you know certain people with same ideas um there's no diversity on the board um on top of that um they're mostly only 20% of people are publishing the best result um and i find it unbelievable that 80% of people do not have anything to write about or speak about and then on top of that um and it excludes a lot of um people um from other emerging um, research um, areas. For example, think of an ideal situation where you have, um, let's say, all of the top journals have um, 250 spots uh, for mm -hmm. uh, publications. Uh, right. And they're like a million researchers around the world. Um, so everyone's competing for those 250 positions, which gives them an unfair right. advantage. Exactly. And, then, and I I'm just wondering, um, I talk a lot about um, academic um, you know, deterioration, both in terms of quality and um, quantity. Um, and most of the people that I talked to, I was talking to Luis Serrano, you're probably familiar with him, he also the YouTube channel, um, yeah. machine learning, um, is one of the best um, quantum computing scientists um, at Zapata. Right. And he, he was thinking about the same thing that, you know, academics um, isn't as uh, glorified career as it used to be. Um, what has your experience been? Yeah, so, in academia, the goal, um, not necessarily my opinion, but the goal is to get published in a high impact factor journal, like for example, Nature or Science. Um, as you mentioned, they have limited spots. And so they have the selective power of accepting only selected articles. And But the thing is like this, there has been a study that papers published in high impact factor journals, like for the most part, are not even cited. So more than 80% have zero citations. And there are only like 20% uh, that are cited. And so the thing is, if papers are not of high, um, they're not of high interest, so they might not get published there. So it has to have this mass appeal. So the topic has to be like a hot topic, like a trending topic. Um, but then there are there are some journals emerging like Peer J where they're 
um, they're not evaluating your work based on the perceived um, trendiness of your work, but they they evaluate your work based on your methodology. Is it scientifically sound? If it is, then they're 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 gonna evaluate and consider it for publication. So a lot of the prior um, journals that I've previously submitted to, they have this perceived interest. Sometimes they will reject the paper without even sending it for peer review. They'll just take a look and they'll be like, um, sorry, it's outside the scope of this journal mm -hmm. or it doesn't appeal to their audience. So they, So it's not like scientifically rejecting the work, but based on their audience, will their audience be interested in your work? But PJ, I mean, if it's related to life science and if it's scientifically sound, they're definitely going to consider your work. Yeah. So, yeah, I have I think like a, a, yeah. Th this very fact makes um, academics um, such a politicized and, and corrupt industry. And I think of the fact that you know, if you have people who are doing PhDs, why should they actually have have the requirement to publish in top journals before they get PhD? Because they're they're two hundred and fifty spots. And no matter how many times you try, all those million researchers are not going to publish that. That means that's going to, you know, um, make their durations longer than they normally are. It adds to mental stress. Um, and I've been thinking for a long time for an alternative models to university. And I'm more than happy to explore it with you. Um, what if we only, um, no teachers or no supervisors or no one is able to actually kind of well, mildly put blackmail the students uh, in order to get published. Um, there's a platform online like Open Journals and everyone's free to publish just like Medium and their research. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the end, there would be people sitting together and see the kind of research they have done and only add to the points which would make research better. So why do we right. actually have to have grades, you know, to pass people or fail people or exclude them or include them instead, you know, help them make their research better and you know, get a degree and be happy because I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, depression and despondency and um, hopelessness in PhD students. Yeah. It's not a very paying career. It doesn't pay right. very well. Um, I was reading, you know, on Glassdoor, um, even if you're hiring for a researcher at Stanford, it pays like around 63,000. Um, that's almost like um, wage worker at some point. And people don't okay. spend a lifetime's work um, to be able to earn 63,000 when you know you could be an electrician and work um, in the north of 80K. So I was just wondering, exactly. uh, do, do you have uh, over your lifetime uh, formulated some opinions on how academics can be better? Yeah, I, I think it, it's also similar in, in our case in, in Thailand as well. So I think it's for the love of science. So the compensation of obviously, if you have a bachelor's degree, you're obviously going to make more like if you spend like four years working or and you spend four years doing a PhD. By the time four years has passed, if you have a bachelor's degree, you're probably going to make much, much higher salary than if you have a PhD. But I think the thing about doing personal PhD or, or masters is to transform your thought process, to be able to solve problems that um, might be um, interesting to you, uh, challenging to you. So uh, like personally, it's the thought process, it's the transformation that happens after the PhD. Like um, 
like the ideas that you will have, like when you view a problem, how will you decide to solve the problem, like in a systematic way? Um, but the thing is, it doesn't. Re you don't require a PhD to be able to do that. You might also stumble upon um, being able to solve problems more effectively than a PhD. So, I mean, the thing is not uh, the degree itself, but the exposure of doing a PhD in relation if you're also doing it manually. Um, so the thing is, you, you might be able to stumble upon the same path, uh, but then in, in, in a structured program like a PhD, they'll teach you, um, you also have to explore by like what, three to four years of research uh, in order to solve uh, your hypothesis. Um, yeah, so, so in my opinion, I think it's for the love of science that, uh, yeah, but, but then the pay is not. Yeah, but if you're not incentivizing people uh, through right monetary rewards um, or mm -hmm. even prestige, for example, you know, it's it's not the end of the world uh, once you have the PhD degree. Right. There's always it a full dog. It's just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's just the beginning of another yeah. series of oppression throughout the life that you have to embrace for the love of science. So you said like yes. assistant professor and associate professor and a full tenure professor and then research grants and everything. Research why, grants. Why would people actually choose a career which has so much pain a lot of only love yeah. of science <laughs> right yeah so i think like for me it's it's the ability to explore the, the possibility to explore things that um that might be interesting to you like so like for example you could spend a whole semester just you know dabbling coding um you know like the thing is you, you might have like a vague hypothesis um, so unlike, unlike a company or industry that you have to have a clear goal of, you know, like making money, uh, in academia, sometimes you could do things that don't make money. You could do things that consume money. Um, so, but the thing is, it's about the creativity, like doing things that don't seemingly don't make money, but then it might be the basis for discovery of new technologies. So. Uh, I think the fun part is in, in that, like being able to, uh, being allowed to kind of like play, play with your ideas. Mm. And yeah, so I think that's, that's well, a, a lot of people of in academia, um, you know, kind of decide to leave it um, in their um, senior ages. For example, you probably are familiar with Fei-Fei Li, um, computer vision um, course at um, MIT, and she joined Gartner also. Um, oh, okay. and they're also like, um, right. public Leaving academia that, for industry, right? I'm not sure if she kind of left MIT, but you know, uh, uh, she does work for Angaran that, um, and you know, it's very common. Um, a lot of research institutes at Google and Facebook and um, mm -hmm. Apple, and they hired a lot of academics or more than happy to go there for um, once and make some money um, off of their work also. Um, and uh, but, but it brings me to an interesting question. I mean, what would you pick uh, being a world-class attractive, a genius or famous uh, for doing something great if given an option? Hmm. I would say doing something fun. Like being oh, a YouTuber is also fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the middle path. Yeah, so, so doing something fun mm -hmm. and it's impactful. Okay. 
I guess that's synonymous um, to the fact that you know, famous for doing something great, it only happens when you enjoy the process. Exactly. Um, right. You're gonna do great things if you don't enjoy that. Exactly. Who do you think is the most influential figure um, in um, in your field or in general that would you like to emulate? Ah, yeah. So I mentioned that there was a professor from Uppsala who uh, invited me over to Uppsala to co-apply for the grant and a fellowship. So I think he is one of the role model, uh, Professor Joel Wickberg, and another is my former uh, PhD supervisor and co-supervisor. Uh, so they have taught me to be uh, a scientist, a researcher. And so without both of them, I wouldn't have uh, become a professor. And another is Professor um, from Lund University, left below. Who is uh, who? Who who given who has given me the chance to uh, pursue like computational protein engineering? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think despite um, chilling cold, Sweden is probably one of the best places if you have the intellectual curiosity for things. Um, you know, I remember my time there. I could go to any class. You know, learn um, different things. Um, in different courses, even if you were not enrolled in that. Um, and, right. And the environment in general is very encouraging of, um, you know, minds that are craving that. Um, finally, you started the YouTube channel um, at your daughter's request. Um, right. How many children do you have? How much? How many children do you have? Oh, one. Okay, nice. And what, yeah. what do you see um, for her um, in the future? Is she as inquisitive as you? Um, we certainly have great ideas like starting YouTube channels. Right. So when asked what she wants to become when she grows up, she says she wants to become a game game YouTuber. Okay, like Twitch? Yeah. And yeah, like, um, I think YouTube, YouTube channel, like a game caster. <laughs> Does she play any games? Yeah, she does. Roblox? Cool. Yeah. Oh, Minecraft? Cool. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, it's been such an honor talking to you, um, Shannon. Um, I have very few people that uh, I can say that um, it's a true pleasure um, and, uh, you know, events that I would remember uh, for a long time. Um, thank you so much for what you're doing um, on YouTube, inspiring a lot of people um, to learn data science, machine learning, um, make an impact um, in life um, with their gifts. Uh, a lot of people uh, look at you as role model. Um, in my private group, when I announced that you know, I'm going to be having data professor on the channel, and you know, everyone was so, uh, psyched up, um, oh, cool. you know, they've benefited from your video. Um, so you might not even know that the impact that you have around the globe where people know wow. you and unknown places. Um, and it's such an honor um, to be able to talk to you. Um, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Um, would you like um, to give any message um, to your viewers and people who um, look up to you? Yeah, so Okay, there was a lack in the internet. Yeah, so it's my pleasure. And I thank you for inviting me over on your podcast. And there there were a lot of points that um, were very interesting that we have gone through. And I learned a lot from our discussion. 
And so I really appreciate um, all of the support from uh, your community and also from the subscriber of this YouTube channel. And it's really been a fun journey for the past one and a half year. And I'm constantly learning. And right now I feel like I'm feeling like I'm a PhD student again, you know, like learning for the first time, um, the joy of learning a new algorithm. And so that process is, you know, like it, it's kind of like re reigniting uh, the fire inside me to learn more. And so the thing is like, there's so much to learn, but the thing is like time is quite limited. And I, I try to find time in the busy schedule. Um, like before there was a lockdown period where we can work from home. And at times, if I can finish up my tasks early, I could have time for YouTube. Uh, but then lately we're, we're back to work. And so it's been quite a challenge to juggle between uh, academia, like like having to publish, uh, having to go through meetings and also uh, trying to be consistent on YouTube. So yeah, so I, I still have to figure out how I can be more uh, productive so that I can have more time to make YouTube videos. And yeah, uh, chatting with people like you, I mean, truly inspire me to uh, want to create more videos. And so, yeah, thank you for your invitation here. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Everyone who's uh, tuned in, um, stay tuned for a wonderful guest um, next week. Um, and you can also join Slack and listen to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.